Welcome to Tales from the Heart. It is September 10th, 2021, and we are live at noon today on the East Coast, actually 12.08 p.m. Uh, if you're watching live, we'll take questions and answers at the end of this segment. If you're listening to pre-recorded, well, we're not going to take your questions now, but you can reach us at 4hcm.org to ask us any questions in the future. I'm joined today with my co-host, Marty Marin from Tufts. Marty, good morning. Morning, Lisa, and good morning to everybody tuning in, all the ATM patients and family members. Glad to have you with us today. And I am too. We're going to take an interesting turn in podcasting today. Um, we're going to focus on what I call filling the toolbox for the future. Okay. And we're going to talk about clinical trials and where we are in HCM. But I've thought we would start with a little bit of a reflection back in time. Yep, yep. Today, an article was published 20 years ago. We are approaching the 20th anniversary of 9-11, which actually was an impactful day for the HCM community and a lost opportunity. Um, on September 20th, your father published a really important article about Black athletes who were dying in disproportionate numbers to Caucasian counterparts from hypertrophic cardiomyopathy during athletic participation. And I had the opportunity and the invitation to go into New York City on September 11th um, to be on a talk show, primarily focused at the um, African-American and black communities. And we were gonna talk about HCM and how it disproportionately was killing young black men. And my driver was to show up at 9.30 in the morning to pick me up and take me into New York City. He showed up and he sat in front of my office and said, what are we doing? I said, I don't think we're going anywhere. And as we all know, the rest is history. So um, we learn, we get some cadence behind us and we start moving forward and things block us beyond our control sometimes. So I hope that message is not lost and that we can still raise awareness among black athletes and black Americans that they're, they're at risk and they need to take HCM seriously. Uh, but let's pivot from that memory moment and think what have we done in the last 20 years in clinical trials and research and advancing understanding of HCM specifically with regards to therapeutics. So you did a couple trials uh, early on in your career. Uh, you wanna talk a little bit about what you did and, and what those drugs were and what we now know about them? Sure. Um, so one of the early, when we say clinical trials, just so everybody understands what we mean, we're talking about the design of a study that is geared to, to trying to determine a, a therapy. In this case, we're talking about drugs. Uh, the safety and the, and the efficacy, how well it works or doesn't work in, in a particular disease. In this case, obviously, we're talking about HCM, but clinical trials are, are, are how we describe those studies where we're evaluating um, new drugs. Um, they may not be brand new drugs specifically uh, developed for disease. They could be drugs that have been used in other situations that we're now applying to a another disease like HCM. And that's what, what happened early on um, in the clinical trial story for HCM, um, which began probably 15, 20 years ago, um, 
probably that's a reasonable beginning point for it. And some of the early trials um, that I happen to be involved in, as well as other investigators, was looking at a drug that had been shown to have benefit in other heart diseases called spironolactone. It's a drug um, that's in the class of drugs called, that are called aldosterone inhibitors. And spironolactone was an interesting drug that we were looking at in HCM because it has antifibrotic properties, meaning it can decrease the, 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 the scarring in hearts. It had been shown to do that in non-HCM uh, diseases. And so we thought we'd look at it in HCM you know, as a way to decrease what we knew was there, which was scar. And, and we knew scar was, you know, not a good thing, is not a good thing, I should say, in terms of uh, probably a promoter of symptoms and maybe arrhythmias. And so um, one of the early clinical trials in this disease was to look at whether that drug actually benefited patients with HCM as it had benefited non-HCM patients dramatically and has actually used quite a lot today in non-HCM forms of heart failure. So that was one of the early drugs that we looked at. Unfortunately, you know, in, 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 in that study, it didn't seem to have that benefit that it had in other diseases. Um, and that story of not having a lot of success showing the benefit of a drug like spironolactone, and there were others that followed suit in that same way. I'll give you another example of a drug that was evaluated after spironolactone was a drug um, that was made by a pharmaceutical company called Gilead. Um, and it was a, a drug that was called, a, it was a, a late sodium channel inhibitor. All that meant is that it altered the, the calcium in the heart. And then we thought that that would be beneficial to patients with ACM because it would help improve the relaxation of the heart and maybe improve filling and, 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 and cardiac efficiency to help decrease symptoms. And, um, uh, that drug was called aleclizine, and, and um, that drug also didn't appear to have uh, the benefit that we thought it was going to either in HCM. And so there have been a number of sort of, um, I should say, uh, there were a number of failures um, in terms of not being able to show efficacy for drugs that had been really beneficial in other heart diseases. And that raised the question, you know, early on, on why? You know, why was that the case? You know, were these just the wrong drugs for HCM? Was it that the tri the clinical trials were designed not the right way in this disease? Was it that we were judging the success of the drugs, meaning the endpoints? We chose to be the wrong kinds of endpoints. Um, were we not giving the drugs long enough to see benefit? There are all kinds of reasons why, you know, that the, the, these cl early clinical trials were, may not have worked. And um, uh, that was, you know, that, that the, a lot of those questions are still unanswered, um, but, but, but we're, we're part of the early experience with drug development in HCM. We learned a lot. Yep. Um, and I think one of the things I was most taken with over the evolution, and we'll get into more modern times today, is really discussing better endpoints. I still yep. think we have a long way to go there and we can maybe dive into that a little bit later, but I think we learned a lot. Um, I happen to have been involved in both of those trials. Um, I do recall having to do a blood test while going to the American Heart Association Conference in New Orleans for the spironolactone study. And I'm like, I am committed. I found a lab. Yeah. So it does require commitment from patients. And I wanna talk about that for just a second. Well, trials are time consumer. 
Yeah, before we get into the commitment, maybe for the patients, let me just kind of just say one thing, because I think it's important that people understand maybe where we were going to get to this. But, you know, I think people, you know, it's important for people that are listening to understand that, you know, in cardiology, there are the opportunity to study the benefit of drugs in all kinds of different diseases, coronary artery disease, atrial fibrillation, valve disease, diseases where you know, the disease is associated with adverse events like cardiovascular death or hospitalizations at rates, at rates that allow you to design a study with those treatments within a reasonable amount of time, within a re with a reasonable amount of patients to determine if the treatment, the new treatment is beneficial or not. In hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, one of the major challenges has always been that we don't, we fortunately for the patients, the event rates, mortality rates are so low that you can't design a trial where you're looking at mortality as an endpoint. It's impossible. It'd be it'd take decades to do that study. And also, ATM patients often don't get hospitalized very frequently either. So you can't, you know, design it based on hospitalizations either. Okay. So the, in other words, the traditional kind of endpoints that, that a lot of, most of cardiology clinical trials are predicated on or designed around do not apply to HCM. And so the question that has always been, and we're still struggling with this, is what is the right endpoint that we should be looking at to determine the benefit of a new therapy? So I'll pivot my point from participation to communication. Mm. So one of the endpoints that are being used today um, sounds good on paper, New York Heart Association class, but this is a challenge. Um, we, I have some data that I need to share with you. We did a quick little study within mm -hmm. the community and we've got about 700 respondents to a survey. We asked them a question. On a good day, what New York Heart Association class do you most align yourself with? On a bad day, which one do you align yourself with? And on an average day, what do you align yourself with? And we found that there was very little consistency, good day, bad day, average day that people say that they're in the same class, right. Right. they jump around. And we don't understand good day, bad day right. syndrome. Right. So first of all, Marty, is good day, bad day syndrome real? What is well, that? It is. Well, it is. There's no question. I mean, I, I think there's absolutely no question about that. In fact, I, I'm always talking to patients about that, actually. It mostly, although it's also applicable to non-obstructives, I think the good day, bad day is most obvious in obstructed patients. They have good days and bad days. They sometimes have good weeks and bad weeks. There's a lot of up and down to how a patient feels, their symptom burden, with obstructive ATM. There may be reasons why that is physiologically, and we can talk about that in a minute, but the idea that a patient could change in how they feel, their perception of how they feel, is absolutely part of the, uh, of the deal. So let's move to current times. 
So I bring up New York Heart Association class because it's what we held on to. Um, and a lot of studies are designed with, well, if we can improve your New York Heart Association class, we win. And, and I'd agree, if you can improve it, we win. But there's little room for variability and other markers that are as easy to just ask a patient, how do you feel? Um, there are other endpoints like BNP or time on a treadmill and other things that we can use to help identify benefit. Right. Um, and hopefully we'll get better at defining those tools so we can see benefits more clearly. I think that's a like a clarion call to what do we need? We need better assessments. That's right. Um, that's right. Better tools. And those are called patient reported outcomes, PROs, right? Mm-hmm. In regulatory FDA language, PROs. Yeah. And as you know, the FDA has been very interested in those as a as a benchmark for success of therapies in heart disease. What the challenge is, is finding the right tools and validating those tools, those PROs, so that we actually do know that they are doing what we hope they are, reflecting something real in terms of the symptom burden, okay? So we're, I think there's a, you know, I think there's a lot of effort right now going on in HCM and other similar types of situations to develop tools that are validated that reflect symptom burden in a reliable way. And if that does happen, those tools get validated, you know, we could see a day soon where they could serve as kind of what we call the primary endpoint for clinical trials in this disease with new new therapies. I think I'm looking forward to when that day comes and creating those tools. So today, right now, there are some trials going on. There's a drug potentially coming to market in January. Um, That doesn't mean it's going to be available to everybody in January, so slow down. Um, So let's talk about the new class of drugs, which now have, we know we have um, different uh, prefixes to um, drug names. So now we have the Camptons. Yep. Um, not to be confused with the Hamptons, um, but what are Camptons? <laughs> yeah, Camptons. That's the 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 last couple letters of the of the class of drugs that we're talking about, which are called myosin inhibitors. That's the class of drugs, myosin inhibitors. And there are drugs that are called myosin enhancers. Okay, so myosin refers to the structural apparatus of the heart. And in the case of what we're talking about in terms of HCM, we're talking about myosin inhibitors. And um, there are, as you were just alluding to, there, there, are, there, there are two uh, of those in, in, under investigation right now for treatment of symptomatic obstructive HCM. The one that is farther along and has been, it would be called a first generation myosin inhibitor is called Mavicamptin. And the one that is, you know, a second generation, not quite as far along in its investigation in terms of clinical trial work is called Afficamptin, A-F-I-C, Afficamptin. And the way that these drugs work as a class is that they, de- they, they decrease the number of interactions between 
the proteins of the heart muscle called the sarcomere. There's the actin and myosin. Those are the two big proteins that form the structural apparatus of the heart. And uh, without a figure, it's a little hard to, to, to sort of wrap your arms around, but the bottom line is that, that the drug decreases the number of interactions that are occurring each heartbeat between the myosin head and the actin filament. Okay. So I have a very simplistic way for people to visualize this. Good. Think of a rowboat. Right. The oars are your myosin. The water is the actin. You have to dip your oars down into the actin to have the chemical reaction to have the contractility happen. Very simplistic explanation. Right. HCM is more like a sculling ship or sculling boat, lots of oars, and we're digging in too deep. So we're relaxing the oars from digging in too deep and working too hard. Mm -hmm. Is that a very simplistic explanation that works? Yeah, I mean, that's good. So that's right. And so then with that said, why is that important? By doing that, what happens is that you decrease the force of contractility, how forceful literally the heart kind of comes together each heartbeat, okay? Kind of dialing that down a little bit since it's without that pretty super, what we call super contractile in HCM, okay? Or hyper contractile. And why is that important then? That's important because if you decrease how forceful the heart is contracting together, you can decrease the time that the mitral valve comes over and in the way of blood flow going out. And that is essentially important because you are then decreasing the pressure gradient that would otherwise be generated by the mitral valve touching the septum, the obstructive part of HCM, okay? And any therapy, any therapy that significantly decreases or eliminates obstruction and normalizes those heart pressures will make a patient with obstructive HCM feel better. So that's the, that's the A goes to B, goes to C, goes to D in terms of the myosin inhibitor initiative. So we're done with one, well, two major trials in this. We had Explorer and Maverick the obstructed right. non-obstructed population. The non-obstructed utilization has taken a back seat to the obstructed because right. there's A, more patients and B, it looks like more utility there. Right. So we're, we're moving forward with our understanding. Right. Um, so understanding evolves. So if you're listening to this eight, 10 years from now, the things may have changed. We may have learned something new. It doesn't mean we're wrong now. It means it's a continual process of learning. Right. Um, but where we are right now, how do you think this is going to um, work as a tool in the toolbox? How many people might benefit statistically um, from these types of therapies, do you think? Yeah, well, it, it, it's a great question. And as you know, I think as you could appreciate, it's always hard and challenging to apply the, the crystal ball to, to, to anything, but particularly to complex heart disease like HCM and treatments that are new for which we're still learning a lot about, you know, um, the total number of patients studied with these drugs with HCM is still fairly small, really small. Yep. 
and the time that they're on the drug has also been very small. So we, we, we're learning, we're learning. It's the process that obviously we have to go through and it would be part of the evolution of any kind of new initiative here. So with that limitation, it's, it, 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 it always makes it hard to, to really know for sure where we're gonna be, for example, with these drugs in three, five, 10 years from now. I think if I were to, you know, provide some potential perspective there, I would say that based on kind of what we know today, um, even though it's limited, but based on what we know today, you know, I think it, that one thing that's fair to say is that the, that this class of drug may be an important additional medical treatment option for symptomatic obstructive HCM patients. Okay. That's, I think if there was an initial kind of perspective to have on where we could be with these drugs, I think that would be the, 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 the first thing that I would say looking into the crystal ball. Okay. It's something really important there. Add on therapy. Right. So we're not getting rid of beta blockers or calcium channel blockers or diuretics or other things. Potentially we're putting it on top of that. Would that be correct? That's right. I think we would still start with those drugs. And then if that didn't work and what we mean by didn't doesn't work, we mean that if a patient still has persistent symptoms that are frustrating to them in terms of impacting their quality of life, then you could be in a situation at that point, potentially with these new drugs. Again, they're not approved and we don't know yet, but um, again, kind of taking a stab at the future that they could present an alternative next step as another drug added on to beta blocker or verapamil or a patient could elect to try disopyramide first, okay? Because there is still a third drug that has a long-standing track record of being effective at improving symptoms in a safe way, and that's disopyramide or norepace, okay? So it could be, you could have a choice then at that point, add on one of the myosin inhibitor drug, class of drugs to establish therapy with beta blocker or or first start with disopyramide um, or go to one of them, you know, go to a myosin inhibitor or we actually have other choices now as well. And it's important to, to point that out. And, and they were pointed out in the recent HCM guidelines in, in 2020 that said that, that a patient who is frustrated with their symptoms may elect, and it may be reasonable to do this, proceed directly to septal reduction therapy, surgical myectomy or alcohol ablation, instead of escalation of medical treatment for symptomatic obstructive HCM. As long as that patient understands, of course, the the the, um, the 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 potential benefits and, and drawbacks or side effects of that treatment, and can have that treatment septal reduction therapy done at a you know expert high volume center. Okay, so we got all kinds of options that are are going to be on the table here, and that's why I'll just you know I'll conclude this segment this the segment that we're talking about right now by saying that like what we've learned for patients that are candidates for surgical myectomy or alcohol septal ablation, it may be a situation where not one treatment 
fits all, not one size fits all, okay? It may end up being that there could be a number of choices and that, that for an individual patient, depending on that patient, their age, what they want out of treatment, what they're willing to accept for side effects. There's the issue that we can talk about too, related to cost. There's all kinds of var what we call variables that may play into a decision about treatments here. And, but one of those treatment options I think is probably going to be a myosin inhibitor. I agree. So <clears throat> you said a couple of interesting things in there. And by the way, I think you may have set a world record for how fast you said beta blocker and calcium channel blocker. We're going to go back to the tape on that one because that just all turned into one word. I'm like, that was impressive. Um, okay. So we have the, the Camptons come into town. So Bristol Myers Webb Cytokinetics working on those drugs. There's yeah, another yeah. company working on a disapiramide or norpace alternative as well. That's a little earlier in trial, but we know that we don't have a consistent supply of norpace CR. Hello, Pfizer, what's the problem? Um, would love to have that available, but we don't right now. Um, do you think there's some options with this new clinical trial? Well, so, so in terms of, so what, I want to make sure I understand what you mean. You mean. So there's another clinical trial yeah. for an alternative type therapy to Norpace by what's it? Celtron. Oh, Celtron. You're talking about Celtron. I got it. Celtron. Yeah. So they have a trial as well. Um, I, I'm not as familiar with that one. I'm not doing a lot of work on that one right now, but I know it's out there. So let's talk about that for a too. So, so. In terms of emerging treatments, we, we, we talked about myosin inhibitors, um, mm -hmm. and how they work, and you know, if we had a crystal ball, where they may be no. in terms of options yet. And then there's also other initiatives going on. There is, as you just mentioned, a company called Celtrion. They're based in South Korea that has a drug called, it's, a, it's a, going to be a new modification on an older drug called Sebenzaline, I believe is the name of it. And that drug, Sebenzaline has been used, it's, 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 in, it's in a class of drug called late sodium channel inhibitors, okay? And I mentioned that earlier in the talk about, about a trial that we did earlier with those, but this is a different drug and it acts in a similar way mechanistically as disopyramide or norpace. Okay. That's the deal. It works the same kind of way, right, mechanistically. And the way that it works, it ends up decreasing contractility as well, okay? But not the same way as the myosin inhibitor, more like disopyramide, okay? Except it doesn't have the side effects that disopyramide has associated with it. Dry eyes, dry mouth, sometimes for men, urinary retention. And it looks like based on its prior experiences that it has a similar or maybe even better efficacy, meaning how it improves symptoms compared to disopyramide or norpix, okay? It's being brought to the United States as an investigation, as you said, a clinical trial investigation, which is gonna be starting in HCM patients, I think pretty soon, but that's early on. I mean, we're early in that experience. so that's going to take some time to understand 
its safety, its efficacy, and ultimately um, whether it, 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 it's going to have the, the same trajectory as the myosin inhibitors in terms of availability. Fantastic. And then we have, the, those are all for the obstructed population. Right. Monday, you're going to join us back in Zoom world at right. 6 p.m. to discuss another clinical trial that's launching. You've already started it at Tufts with a company called Imbria for right. the non-obstructed population. Right. You talk on that just for a minute. And if you want to that's really right. hear the deep dive on that, join us Monday night at 6 p.m. right here on Facebook. So uh, we're, we're, what we're talking about now is a completely different class of drugs than either the Celtrion drug or the myosin inhibitor. We're talking about a, a drug that uh, does not yet have a name. Um, it just has a letter and abbreviations, but it's made by a company called Imbria which is based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And it's of the class of drugs called metabolic modulators. That's the common you know, way we describe them, Medica metabolic modulators. So what does that mean? These are drugs that change the energetics of the muscle, heart muscle, in, in a different way than if, they were, if, if a patient wasn't taking the drug. To make energy utilization of the heart more efficient, okay? So shifting it from the heart muscle cells, instead of using free fatty acids as energy, use more glucose, okay? So what that means is that for each sort of heartbeat, and each heartbeat is a contraction and that requires energy, right? For the heart to do that. And so if you can make that process of energy utilization more efficient in a way than currently, then two things can happen. You can get better blood flow to the heart muscle and maybe improved relaxation of a heart muscle and therefore filling of blood more efficient and pumping that blood out potentially more efficient. So in other words, this would be a drug by changing the energetics that would make the mechanics of the heart more efficient, okay? And that's an important, you know, issue, particularly for the non-obstructive HCM patients, okay? Because the obstructives have a very mechanical reason why they don't feel well. The valve is in the way. You can decrease the valve from getting in the way. So different mechanisms are why patients with non-obstructive HCM feel poorly, okay? And so this drug is trying to address those issues, okay? by changing or making more efficient energy utilization of the heart. So that's why it's being investigated in non-obstructive HCM as opposed to obstructive HCM, okay? And that clinical trial for this new drug for symptomatic non-obstructive HCM, and this is a phase two study, meaning we're learning with this study things about safety, tolerability, and efficacy, but all of them in a phase two, has started and will and will be enrolling even in more centers in the United States as well as London in the coming weeks to months. So on Monday night, we're going to launch a survey opportunity yep. for people to look at the inclusion and exclusion criteria and decide if they would like us to help them get in contact with a study coordinator. Right, right. Right. And with about six, seven minutes in a survey, 
you can just make a choice and say yes, and we will have that study coordinator reach you personally. So um, join us Monday night to learn more about the drug on the trial and the survey opportunity will be sent to everybody on the HCMA email list. Uh, so if you want to get a copy, make sure that you're signed up with us and we will get that to you. Um, so the toolbox is getting full. We're getting more specific tools for us right. as opposed to general heart failure stuff. Um, do you see anything else coming down the pipeline in terms of medications and therapeutics? Well, there's, you know, there are, you know, kind of initiatives, I guess I'd say that are very early on, you know, trying to determine whether there's a benefit to altering the gene, so gene therapy techniques to you know improve the natural history of, of the disease as well um i think those are very early um in development and probably because they're so early and also very complex in terms of um, the science behind them and how that would work i think it's probably worth just saying that that's out there but not ready to really to have a deep dive conversation about it yet yeah, we're going to start in the next couple of months putting a little bit more information online about mm -hmm. how some potential therapies might move forward. This is a very um, evolving field. Um, I know a lot of people hear about mRNA vaccination delivery systems, and they think that's all about COVID and it came up out of nowhere. And that's why some people don't trust vaccines when in fact the mRNA scaffolding has been in development for over a decade, and it's the, the underpinnings of how you would deliver genetic therapy late, you know, if we can figure all of these pieces out. So I think first we need to make sure people understand the delivery systems and science needs to understand how people accept this information and we have to work on that. And then we have to figure out if it actually comes to pass that we can correct the DNA of somebody with a disease that is, um, you know, genetically uh, uh, transmitted. Uh, so that's going to be, that one's going to be a steep, steep learning curve for a lot of people and just a whole different way of thinking about disease management. But we're excited to have the opportunity to have the discussion of a potential. So it's, it will be, you'll be hearing more about that. And, and I think it's important for for patients to, to understand a couple of things too, as we move forward here. And that's that, you know, we're fortunate in one way too, that we, we, we have for this disease established treatments that are very effective. Okay. Nothing's perfect, but they're very effective. Okay. In, in a lot of situations, in, in the majority of situations, they're very effective interventions, drugs and invasive therapy. You know, again, just to obviously, I think we all get this, but to, just to remind everybody, I mean, that's not the case, obviously, for a lot of other diseases where uh, there is no alternative option for patients for certain problems. Um, and that's not the case here. We have very good treatments. And so when, we're, when patients are ultimately going to be deciding about new treatments versus established treatments, you know, it's going to be a complicated, um, you know, d discussion that will involve, 
really having the opportunity for patients to really hear the pros and cons of all the options and in a way that will allow them to be fully educated and empowered to make the best decision for them. And that's going to, again, emphasize, as we've been talking about in different podcasts, kind of the role of HCM expert centers, where that hopefully that knowledge and expertise and also the opportunity to offer all of those different options to patients will exist. Okay. So again, emphasizing and underscoring the important network of HCM centers and the expertise they will bring to the table to what will be ultimately probably here soon, complicated discussions about treatment. So many years ago, um, I was at a conference and there was a couple people hanging around an HCM poster and I looked at them all and one was your dad and another one was Harry Lever and um, Province Shaw was there. So like the old school team, mm-hmm. if you will. And I thought, oh boy, I, I got to go put my old recruiter hat back on and I got to find some more team members. And the quest to build new centers really started like 20 years ago. And um, in that time, you know, think of where we were and where we, where we are. I had a dream. I'm going to sound a little, you know, melancholy here, but it was, we can't have clinical trials until we have silos of patients and knowledgeable physicians taking care of them to build those trials. Right. 20 years ago, before anybody thought of building clinical trials, I'm like, but we have to have the patients all together. And that was one of the, core points of building centers of excellence. And um, 20 some odd years later, there's 42 programs that we're working with right now and 16 under review. Um, Not all centers are created equal. Some don't have surgery, some don't do transplants, some don't do peds, but the core functions are, you know, there. And we need to develop that further so that patients have the opportunity to get to my next point here, to participate in a clinical trial. Right. And to evaluate the information, their goals, what they want out of life and say, I'm willing to do this trial. I'm willing to put myself out there. I'm willing to take a little bit of a chance because right. trials may not turn out the way we think. It's a trial. We're trying. Um, so I just encourage patients to listen. Yep. If it seems right to them and they're working with a team that knows HCM, give it a shot. I've been in a number of clinical trials. I don't regret one of them. Um, We all learned collectively, even if sometimes it wasn't the most fun in the world or a couple extra sticks with needles or what have you. Um, I did it for my family. I did it for all of you. I I did it to enhance the science. It was my contribution. Um, And I, I know so many others have done the same and are doing it right now. And I appreciate them and I thank them. And I'm sure I speak for your whole team there, Marty, and all of the other researchers. You can't do a trial without the patients. So thank you for participating, everybody who has, and for those who might want to, try. So- And and thank you for putting that network of centers together. You know, I mean, as you said, it wouldn't have been, we wouldn't be able to, to, to execute on these clinical trials without that in place, I think. You're absolutely correct. And so- um, for sure, you deserve an enormous amount of credit for, for that vision and executing on that vision. 
it ain't been easy, but it's been fun. <laughs> we've, we've, we've learned I mean, a lot you, along the way. If you had told me, you know, 15 years ago when your husband was helping put together the AV uh, equipment for the fourth HCMA con patient conference in New Jersey that we would have 42 HCM centers of excellence and 12 under review. Um, I probably wouldn't said you're crazy. There's absolutely that's I don't know what you're talking about. So the fact that's come to be a reality is really uh, an amazing story. Yeah, and I only like had to stop for a short period of time to go get a new heart in the middle of all that. <laughs> a, mo a momentary step back. A momentary pause in my production. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, so it doesn't happen in a silo. It happens with a team. And um, we build those silos with teams, I guess is the best way to say it. And thankfully, we have an amazing team here at the HCMA. It's, it's not an individual effort. So I just want to acknowledge the contributions of our board, our volunteers, and our staff, because together we make this stuff happen. Um, so I want to take a strange pivot for just a minute. And then we'll get to a couple of questions, but I do need to wrap it one. So the question now, we, we were the island of misfit toys. The cruise ships are pulling in. Um, there's all kinds of cool stuff happening. How do we work together as a community to ensure access and availability to new things that might be expensive? How do we do this? It's a trick question because there's no one answer, but we have to start engaging in things in a very different way. We didn't think about negotiating with payers and PBMs for a good tier on a, a formulary to make sure that patients have access. This is my old world and my new world colliding. I used to be a health plan administrator, some of you may know, and I designed healthcare plans. And now the world has changed a lot since then. The, the 90s health plan is not the health plan of today, but we need to start thinking about these things um, as a community. Um, we, we just had a podcast a few minutes ago about the ICER review on the economic modeling of Mavic Hampton. We got to make sure that these are priced well and that they're available. We love our pharma partners. Um, I know pharma's got a bad name to some people, but without them, we wouldn't have new therapies and they need to make the money on those therapies. And that's, that's real. That's the way we're going to get things done. But at what cost? Um, any bright ideas or thoughts on? No, I don't think, you know, I, I think that, that, that I probably, you know, that, that that's an incredibly important area. You know, it's something that I got to say, I, 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 I don't probably have the comfort level with, un, with all the understanding about it that I should, partly because we've never been in this position before, you know? So I don't really understand what our, a lot of complex cogs in the wheel here, um, you know? And so I, I think the principle that we really need to be focusing on this now is critical because there's a difference, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna probably see regulatory approval for drugs probably, but that's totally different than payer approval, you know, and, and access to the drugs. And the drugs are approved, but they're too expensive um, way too expensive, then it, it's not going to, obviously it doesn't work. It's, that's a, that's a huge problem. How we circumvent that 
from happening or, or try to mitigate that from happening. I don't know if I know the answer to that. That's I'm going to, I'm going to let you do that. <laughs> Why? Thank you. The first thing I can tell you is everybody has to get to the table and speak. Yeah, and yeah. the ICER process is one of those. And we are encouraging patients to share their story by September 15th with ICER through their website. You can watch the other video here on Facebook on that. But it's critically important that you share your story and, and people understand the economic burdens of HCM, not just what we pay for our health insurance and our co-pays and our deductibles, but the other things that cost we need babysitters for longer hours in the day because we don't have the energy or we need to not take that extra responsibility at work because we can't handle the extra physical or mental stress, or we didn't get to go back to finish the degree that we wanted because we don't have the energy to go to work and school at the same time. Whatever has held you back financially that might be tied to your HCM is, is important to start documenting. And we're going to be doing some economic modeling of our own in the next couple of months with some new partners to help understand the total burden of disease. We did our patient focused drug development meeting and we talked about the burden of disease physically to patients and emotionally. We didn't talk about finance and we're going to start diving into that because it's Good. critically important. Good. Totally. Okay. Oh, I forgot to look at questions. Post your questions now on Facebook and we will get to them. We have lots of hellos today. Not a lot of specific questions. I thought this might um, jump into those. Okay, guys, we're going to jump in. Nope. Oh, that's the other podcast. That was the other one I did. Okay. We don't have a lot of questions today. We just, oh, sorry. Joining a little late. Dicepyramide is given to those with obstruction. Um, not typically non-obstructed. Although, Marty, did you ever use Diso in non-obstructed with AFib? You, you can use disopyramide as an antiarrhythmic for atrial fibrillation to try to maintain sinus rhythm. You can do that as a way of treating atrial fibrillation. Um, however, I will say that it's a very weak antiarrhythmic drug. It's not very effective. Okay. Um, it doesn't work that well for that indication, but it can be, it can be tried. Yeah, I, I think so. Okay, we do have a couple of questions here yep. um, and comments in countries where there are small numbers of myectomies, um, more drug therapy options would be a great advantage. I agree. Um, so somebody's asking about um, Tanaya Therapeutics and um, some of the work being done by Haya uh, Therapeutics on halting or reversing fibrosis. Um, Hickam, uh, those are really great observations. This is really early science. Um, we don't know how HCM hearts are going to respond. We know Tanaya is focusing on myosin binding protein C mutations as a starting point. Um, there's another company that's focusing on um, the troponin I mutation, I think, for genetic therapies. So stay tuned. We're all learning together in real time, and we'll bring you advances as we can. Okay, um, I think that's all we got from questions today. If anybody has any other comments or questions, um, you know, you can always post them. You can call us. You can jump in on another podcast and ask questions or join us Monday night, um, which is September 13th at 6 p.m. Uh, Marty will be with me as well as we will have a taped portion from Michael Freno. Uh, he's actually in the Middle East right now working, so the times don't quite work for him. So he's going to pre-record and send that to us. 
and he's going to talk about the mechanisms of this particular um, uh, drug in this trial. And we'll dig in deeper and hopefully all learn together and get this new clinical trial launched. We're kind of excited about that here. We've been working behind the scenes for about six months on this. And uh, it's really nice to start getting it out to the patients. Um, and I have my own personal goals on when I think we can hit the marks for this recruitment. And my ideas are way faster than the drug companies because I know the power of this amazing community. And you'll all sign up if you think it's right for you and you'll participate and we appreciate that. Okay, Marty, um, you also had a big week I, I see last week, uh, thanks to Facebook. Uh, did somebody start full-time school? <laughs> somebody did, yeah, somebody did, thank God. Um, <laughs> yeah, my daughter has uh, started full-time school and uh, uh, my son pre-K, pre so both of them out of the house at least for some of the day together, uh, together. So that's good. That's really good. <laughs> you know, helpful. there is something about those pictures of your daughter and that look on her face, buddy, <laughs> you got your hands full. Yeah. You got your hands full. She's adorable, but I think she's going to give daddy a run for her mo his money. <laughs> yeah. I'm strapped in. So <laughs> I'm, I'm ready. Gonna be a wild ride. All one right. Thing, one thing I think just, just really quickly to, you know, for everybody out there who's still with us, um, or we'll be listening, um, the HCM Summit. Yes. Um, yeah, the HCM Summit. It's a, almost a, usually at every three-year conference. It's the definitive scientific meeting on HCM. Um, there's going to be a huge patient component on Saturday night that Lisa will be obviously discussing and, and, and advertising, but there will be the opportunity to sign up, hcmsummit.org. That's the website. You can take a look at the program. These are going to be talks by all the key opinion, a lot of the key opinion leaders in the disease, not all, a lot of the key opinion leaders in the disease, um, giving um, talks on all aspects of HCM, including new treatments. Okay, I'm get, I, I forgot to ask the question. So right before, the reason why we're at 12 o'clock today and not 11 is because Marty had to interview a patient who is going to be featured at the summit. And if you have a television or if you have uh, internet or if you are conscious, you probably know this person because his work is um, what is known as CNN. So you interviewed Jeff Zucker. Why? Well, Jeff's, uh, you know, Jeff Zucker's been a, a, a longtime patient and um, he's benefited enormously from current treatments for HCM. And um, we interviewed him because he was willing to talk about his patient journey um, and the impact that those treatments have had on his, his life, his quality of life, his ability to perform professionally. And it's a very, you know, I think captivating and engaging story. Um, he's a great person. He's a great communicator. Obviously, he He's a very well accomplished person, but he really can put, I think, in a way, the disease, the patient journey, and the, the impact of treatments into a into a story, which he's going to tell and did tell. Um, that's I think going to be a really a, a valuable part of the HCM summit for people to tune into. Yep. So if you want to hear Jeff Zucker's story with HCM, please remember to sign up for the summit. Um, okay. 
Thank you all for listening. Marty, thank you. Thanks to thank our you. sponsors from Tales from the Heart and the entire HCMA team who helps make these things happen. And uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with Marty. And we have a special segment of the Big Hearted Warrior Tour coming up in October after the summit where Marty and some members of the um, Tufts team will be joining us to give us an overview of the summit and some highlights. So um, you can sign up for that now on the HCMA website at 4hcm.org. Marty, thanks for everything. Enjoy the rest of your day and the weekend and uh, have fun with those kids. We appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Tales from the Heart. For more information on HCM, we encourage you to visit our website at 4hcm.org. Join us online for the conversation on our Facebook page or in our private group. Facebook page can be found at Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. And our Instagram handle is at 4HCM Warriors. That's the number 4HCM Warriors. Follow us on Twitter at 4HCM.org. For those members of the LinkedIn community, you may want to follow the conversation on the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association group. Join us today. To contact the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association, you can call 973-983-7429. You can email us at support at 4hcm.org or visit us online at our website 4hcm.org and send us an email from there. The Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association is located in New Jersey and operates on East Coast time. We would like to thank our sponsors, Myocardia, Invitae, Boston Scientific, and Cytokinetics for their support of this program. The HCMA is partnering with Myocardia, 23andMe, and others to help learn more about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Learn more about these initiatives at 4HCM.org. Invitae, a genetic testing company and a sponsor of Tales from the Heart, is proud to provide free genetic testing to families with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Please learn more at 4HCM.org. Hey, we know life with HCM can be challenging, and support is critical. That's why the HCMA has created an online support group system to help you and your loved ones live better with HCM. Join us. The HCMA is seeking volunteers on a number of different projects, including our online support group system, our peer-to-peer, big-hearted friend system, and our legislative subcommittee. Please visit 4hcm.org to learn more today.